Welcome back to Library Media Chatter, the podcast for Greg and I, and at least one other librarian who wrote us an email. More on that coming up later in this week's episode. I keep saying week, Greg, but I really feel like it's maybe not, month is how I need to train myself to speak. It, yeah, we have not yet gotten to once a week, not even close. No, but if these listener mail uh, things keep coming in, yeah, who knows? Maybe we'll have to go to daily. <laughs> keep getting can't. this kind of encouragement. Right. And, and praise is accepted. Uh, we are happy yeah. to take as much as you want to send our way. Yeah. I guess we should introduce ourselves as we always do. I am Dan Wright, a librarian at Melville and Oakville High Schools. And I am Greg Baum. I am a librarian at Rockwood Summit High School. Very exciting stuff. Um, should we, speaking of, we, I said week and not month, should we be better about saying library media specialists? I, I tend to call myself yeah. a librarian, but I know, I know that I'm so much more than that, Greg. <laughs> you are you know i was reading a book it, it was a mystery book about a, an academic librarian and there's this part where he goes to a conference and he's talking about the hierarchy of librarians with academic librarians like him and like the author of course sure at the top and yes. at the very bottom are school library media specialists and i wish i had like copied down the passage because it was like describing them as like these desperate like starving things that needed you know and I was like that's so interesting to me because a <clears throat> I think in so I don't I mean I've never been a public librarian like a reference librarian or a librarian at a public library I don't know that I ever will be um but I can't imagine their job is drastically different from Greg, it's night and day. How dare you? Uh, the books are upside ha- down. Yes. I mean. Have you never seen the Noah Wiley series <clears throat> of, uh, I believe they're like made for TV films where he's like an adventurous librarian who's going. Yes, it's it's he's called like, the librarian. Yes. Very, yes. Yes. That's so we're not living that life. That's no, what true. That's what real librarians get to do. Well, and let's remember that academic librarians are at the top. I mean, that's yes. very important to remember. Yes. It's it's like Indiana Jones. Yeah. Where you see this guy is just a college professor, which is what yeah. most people like. That's that is a job. But then he's out shooting Nazis and stuff. You're like, oh, so that's Nazis. what that yeah. job is. I'm yeah. going to go work at a Got college it. studying yeah. uh, archaeology or whatever. Yeah. And so that's that is what a college librarian does. If you work in an academic setting. Yeah. You are also uh, the owner of a multi pocketed vest and Excellent. probably a cool hat. Yeah. And oh. maybe a whip or well, something. I was going to say, how of, can you forget a whip? The whip is the. Well, that might be just for archaeologists. Oh, I, don't I want to assume anything. I but see. Probably some type of anachronistic handheld. Yeah. Uh, weapon slash yeah. tool yeah uh, that would not be expected of somebody no. in your field and is really no longer practical now i'm going to spend the rest of this podcast thinking mm-hmm. about what mm-hmm. that would be for a librarian who yeah. goes on adventures because i'm not going to watch noah wiley yeah but i assume uh maybe he's got an abacus that yeah he can swing at people yeah or some type of t-square that wouldn't yeah. make any sense for a librarian to yeah. have. Maybe he just throws old 
library cards. Oh, people from the old Dewey drawers. Kind of like a crossover with Gambit or something he, like that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. One of my favorite comic book characters of all time. Yeah, he was a favorite for me too. Uh, who knew that he was a librarian? <laughs> so yeah, now with we a, know. With a gambling problem. Yeah. There well, was a real. Yeah. I said librarian, Greg. Yeah. We don't have to be redundant about it. We know. <laughs> the gambling problem is just built in, I assume. Our our lives are constantly uh, yeah. just who knows what's going to happen. Well, it's the Wheel of Fortune. We're yes. really subject to the Wheel yes. of Fortune day in and day out. Constantly. So, and that's today's episode, everyone. Yes, we did <laughs> Thanks it. for joining We've us. We covered it. Uh, let's. There's no real easy segue into no. our first segment, so let's just jump right into it. Greg, what are you reading? Okay, I am reading. Well, I just finished Circe by Madeline Miller. I love Madeline Miller. Um, <clears throat> as far as I know, she only has two books. She has Circe and she has The Song of Achilles. If you haven't had high school girls coming into your library yet asking for Song of Achilles because it's on Book Talk. Um, I assume you will eventually. Um, we uh, actually did not have a copy. We had a copy of Cersei and not Song of Achilles, and we had to buy Song of Achilles because of the incessant demands from crying girls. And so... Crying so, like Beatle fans cry. Yes, like, yes, yes, exactly. It's, it's have you seen Miller any of Mania. these videos? I have not, no. Well, it's really interesting because they are... It's, it's not, not... They're not really reviews, and it's... What drives them is is they're all about how hard you can cry describing it. I mean, it's really, a, it's a bizarre form of book recommendation to me, but it seems to be extremely uh, effective. Out of the two, I much, much, much prefer Song of Achilles, but I like Circe a lot. The problem, so Circe is about the character from Odysseus. It is basically an imagining of what her life story might have been. Okay. And the problem with that is that... Um, Cersei spent most of her life alone on an island. Yes. So there is a lot. There is, and and part of the problem is that it's also a story about what it would be like to be a smart and ultimately powerful woman in a society that marginalizes and oppresses women. And I understand that that's an important story and a powerful story. Uh, however, much of the book is about staging how Cersei is powerless and how she is helpless and so it is, it drags. I mean, there's just a lot of time where she's not doing much. Okay. And um, there are only so many men to turn into pigs, Greg. Right. And, and, you know, there's, it's a, it is, again, I really like it. Madeline Miller is a fantastic writer. It's a beautiful book. Song of Achilles just moved more. There's more going on and there okay. are more things. There were more things regularly at stake and more kind of events happening. So I just really, and you know, there were, that story was also more interesting to me because I was already aware of it. Like a lot of the Cersei story is just made up, you know? Okay. And so by, by Miller. And so, you know, I mean, it's a good story, but it didn't have quite the same allure for me. Okay. Yeah. That sounds interesting though. It's so if you're into mythology or you liked the Odyssey or yeah, maybe you just enjoy crying while describing things. It would be a great if you're like, so like our 10th grade does a hero's journey book. And if you were looking for a book club for a mid to stronger student, this would be a great choice for that because it's, you've, you've got a female protagonist, you've got, you know, great writing. There's some really strong thematic 
you know, work going on. So you, I think you could do more with it than you could with like a why a lot of YA novels. Sure. Um, but it's probably not, it would probably not be a good all class pick because it is written for, you know, literate adults. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Which is a, a uh... it's a shrinking population. <laughs> <laughs> it is a niche audience. It sure. is. It sure is. Yeah. How about you? What are you reading? So I am in the middle <laughs> of Fly Like a Girl by Mary Jennings. I've, I don't know if it's pronounced Hagar or Hager. Um, it is a YA adaptation of her memoir, Shoot Like a Girl. Okay. She was a, and I don't know, I'm saying was because I haven't gotten to the end, so I don't know where she is in her life. I didn't do any research oh, on gosh. her yeah. in the middle. Yeah. Um, she was a pilot. Uh, she went up through the Air Force and joined the Air National Guard to be able to kind of advance. It's her story, just kind of what it was like. Interestingly, uh, you're talking about Cersei being a character who is a strong female protagonist who also kind of bumps up against all of the uh, issues that go along with that in a world that maybe is less interested in that type of character. That is fairly similar. Like you could use a, a similar description for this book, that this is a, uh, a character, a, a person, who as a young woman knew what she wanted to do and what she wanted to be. And it is a career of, despite proving yourself, kind of bumping up against this next person who doesn't know you and mm -hmm. just says, you're a woman, I don't want you in my crew. You're a woman, <laughs> you're not going to be able to do this. Yeah. In um, one of the earlier chapters, she talks about a story where as she was going up, you kind of get uh, rated as a marksman. So you go and you do training and you work with different firearms. And she was doing, she had been kind of put down by uh, an officer above her about being a woman and you're not going to be able to blah, blah, blah. And so she goes to the range and she's working toward this uh, high rating. And after she was done and she had gotten expert status on whatever the, the gun was, the male officer in charge of it was like man you really shoot like a girl <laughs> and she that's goes so awful <laughs> well, well, well and that's the feeling right and she's yeah. like i was ready to just yell at this guy and freak yeah. out at him and he goes no no no, you don't understand <laughs> me um a lot of the times men come in and they want to show off and they get real tense and they have to to prove whatever and oh. and one up everybody around them and they uh, don't they're not as good they're they because when you're tense and you're squeezing the trigger the wrong way like it it pulls you off of your line hmm. and that calmness isn't there and the ability to kind of handle pressure isn't there it's like i see so many women come through here that are incredible uh and in fact i want to say maybe he was talking about, he mentioned that during the Cold War and during World War II and different times that I want to say it was Russia used a lot of women as snipers oh, because they recognized how much better they were. If you're going to stereotype, like how much better they were at shooting than most oh, wow. men were. Huh. And then so she was like, that made me feel really good. And it made me want. And he said the same thing applied. Some of those same things work in favor of female pilots. Uh, that they are less likely to experience the same issues from G-Force oh. uh, and other things. And she's like, 
I thought he was kind of just buttering me up and trying to make me feel good. So I researched it and it turns out that that's true. Oh, wow. That there are like physiological <laughs> things that make uh, women potentially better pilots, like that you <laughs> are, that you're built a different way that you can handle things a different way. Uh, and so she's like, so I was already shooting like a girl one day. I was hope I hope that I can fly like a girl. No, oh, cool. And I thought that was just a neat story where it's not a pity party book. Yeah. It's not these men treated me terribly, although there are a lot of instances of that. It's sure. not the whole book. It's sure. kind of key moments, but it's also her like, yeah. And then I, I dealt with it and I moved on and I continued to kind of follow my course uh, so it's been good. It's been an interesting, an interesting read for sure. It's a world I don't read a lot of military anything. Mm-hmm. So it's been uh, a pretty good one. So if you have students that are into military things or uh, female readers, or any reader, I guess, who's interested in strong female characters. Yeah, this would be a nonfiction, I would absolutely push some people toward. Yeah. And it's a dogwood, uh, yeah. which was cool. So it was another yeah. one of those great nominees. That's awesome. Yeah. So I think that's our, uh, what are you reading for this month? See, I yes. used it correctly there. Yes. Uh, and it's time for our first commercial break. Yeah, that's right. This episode is brought to you by the Dewey Decimal number 391, which means it's time for Greg's favorite game, Do We Know Our Dewey? I'm going to name books with call numbers that start 391. And Greg is going to guess what that section is all about. I believe last episode was a very easy one. Yeah. This episode, I think Dewey's uh, going easy on you. Maybe, maybe they're they're lying in wait, Greg. That they're it's going to be a couple oh. episodes from now, and you're going to be totally stuck. <laughs> we're building your confidence up. Dewey yeah. keeps sending me these numbers, and I think yeah. uh, I along with the, the big checks. Yeah. Yeah, bring it on. Uh, yes. Okay, so here are some highlights from the Melville and Oakville libraries in 391. Fashion, the 20th century by Francois, I'm going to butcher this, Boisdot. I like it. The Complete History of Costume and Fashion from Ancient Egypt to the Present Day by Bronwyn Cosgrave. Fashions of a Decade series by Patricia Baker and Uniforms, Why We Are What We Wear by Paul Fussell. Greg, what is the theme of this week's section? I'm gonna go with fashion. You nailed it. Yes, got it. it. (laughs) I I appreciate Dewey sending us this number for this episode because I think our libraries have books like this. Yeah. But our teachers and students don't necessarily know. Um, so I was I was interested to kind of notice what we had yeah. in our libraries to see like, oh, I bet there are classes that would get a kick out of being able to kind of go through history and looking at these yeah. things or costuming or whatever. Uh, so I was really interested in that. Yeah, I know when we did our reading um, last year, my co-librarian, Margaret Sullivan, recommended that we keep several of these fashion books, especially the ones that were kind of, like you said, the history and the, the decade kind, um, because we apparently do have classes that use them. And so it's been, a, last year was so strange because of the pandemic, but yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing what you know happens this year and how we can help them use those, use those resources. For sure. 
So thanks to Dewey, number 391, for sponsoring this episode. <laughs> All right, we're back with episode five of the Library Media Chatter podcast. Let's mm-hmm. get right into um, a listener mail segment. Oh. This is going to be new. It's combined with. Yes. With what are you doing? Yeah. This episode's what are you doing um, comes from a listener mail. We got an email from Megan Vallis at Truman Middle School in the Lindbergh District. Uh, and on top of a lot of nice things that she said, mostly about Greg. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> what, uh, what she had asked about or, or was interested in our thoughts on or our experiences with was making nonfiction more visible or browsable um, in the way that we've genrefied fiction so that kids can find things and teachers, for that matter, can find what they're looking for a little bit more clearly. And a few episodes ago, we talked about uh, the way that Melville High School had genrefied our biography and graphic novel sections to try to make that a little bit easier for people to find. She was looking for feedback on uh, ways that maybe she can, and, and a lot of libraries, I think, are in the same world, I imagine. How do we make nonfiction as easy to dig through without having to dig uh, as possible? Craig, do you have, do you notice that you've had a similar issue in your library? That kind of like, I'm looking for a book on X and I have no idea where I'm supposed to go for that. You know, I think um, one of the things that is difficult about browsing nonfiction in our library is that our nonfiction is not, you know, genrefied in any way, not even the biographies, like as you've talked about doing, which means that, you know, we have it organized by the Dewey system, as you can tell by my mastery of it. Yes. And um, it is browsing a set of subjects, you know, say like, you know, you could go to 391 or whatever and browse and the types of books, even though they're all nonfiction, are going to be drastically different. And so I think one of the challenges to browsing is um, browsing nonfiction is, you know, when people browse, they're genuinely looking for something that's like easily readable, like something they, they might just be able to, you know, dive into. And that's really in the way we have it currently organized, not readily apparent. You know what I mean? Yes. Does that make sense? Yeah. Cause I think, and I, I believe we've mentioned this before. I used to work at Rockwood summit high school. So I'm familiar with that mm-hmm. library. Uh, and the two that I work in have kind of similar layouts, right? Our fiction is labeled. We have big mm-hmm. signs pointing to this is where the fantasy books are. And this is where these are. And you can see on the spine labels and you can mm-hmm. all of these different things that kind of point mm-hmm. you where you might want to go. Uh, and obviously forward facing those books of high interest in all your sections is going to be something probably all of us do to some extent. But yeah, like how do I find anything? Mm-hmm. Dewey is, <laughs> I was, when I started in the library, oh, so many years ago, uh, because I can say years plural now. Yeah, very good. Multiple yeah. years ago. I was thrown off because Dewey is kind of already organized, right? Like our nonfiction, mm. just by the nature of the Dewey Decimal System says that we are organized. But in the libraries that I've worked in or 
schools that I've been in and most places that I've gone when I try to pay attention in libraries are, we don't have signposts. Mm-hmm. We have Dewey and we're like, oh, that exists. Great. Kids can find stuff. Mm-hmm. No, they can't. Why would they know how to find anything? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a big challenge and everybody's space is different, which is the other side is like, how do you draw attention so that kids don't have to just go, I just wanted a book on fashion. And now I have to wander the stacks or whatever your situation is and just hope that one jumps out at me because I'm shy and I don't want to ask anybody. I'd like to be able to do this like I do all my other books and just walk to an area. Um, just some thoughts about this. So one thought about making nonfiction more visible and browsable is that, you know, the challenge, I th- I mean, really what the, what any library organizational system is about is about making it easy to get to a specific copy of a book, right? Yes. Um, and so that is, to some extent, not easily compatible or maybe incompatible with easy browsing because yes. browse, so like in some ways are the, we have conflicting desires. And so I think one way to handle that is by saying, well, you know, I'm going to have essentially two separate areas that are going to serve two different purposes, right? So you can have browsable areas where organization is a secondary principle, right? Um, and you can have the highly organized areas where people can go through and find the specific book that they're looking for. And when I've gone to public libraries, they just set up, you know, like a a trending book display that could be not, you know, and I mean, I think that is one good option. Two things that we've done at Summit are we have created um, a browsing area for our new acquisitions. So all the new fiction goes on, we have four, four back up, backing up to another four. So eight total Okay. of these rolling standing shelves. Four of them are for fiction, four of them are for nonfiction and it's our new title. So, I mean, that's very browsable because you can walk over and just see, Hey, what came in? Well, there's only four books in, you know, the three hundreds. Sure. And so it's much easier to get through that. Now, the last thing I'm going to say is I really think making nonfiction browsable starts with purchasing, because if you're not buying titles that people are going to want to pick up, you can put out however many you want of opposing viewpoints and make those browsable and no one is going to browse them. Yes. So I really think that's where it starts. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point is how can you highlight the books that people will want to pick up? Because some of it is it's research, right? Some of it is you have to have those opposing viewpoints or you have to have some of those informational texts that are a little drier, uh, but they are for curricular purposes. You know that students are coming in with a class. Yeah. But if you're looking for high quality nonfiction and you're going out and finding it and buying it, you've got to make it so that people know that you have it. Um, We have... At, at Melville, kind of unique, because again, everybody has their own space. We have one double-sided shelf that runs, well, whatever, like unit that runs pretty long. And one side is the zero hundreds to the six hundreds. And the other side is the seven hundreds to the nine hundreds. It has mm-hmm. all of our nonfiction. But within that unit, we tried to add signage. So, which I think is, is simple, right? Like that's an, because you can do displays and 
great. Like, I love if you have the space that you can do, here's what we just have. And you're updating that every right. time you get new books. That is a, a, a number one, right? Like that's, that's the way people are going to see things the easiest, but at some point it goes on your shelves. Right. Yeah. So, so we got those shelf whiz, the like clips that you can mm-hmm. put on and it hangs the thing and you can put a little piece of paper in it and made color printed labels for sections even within that so we had a lot of kids at melville interested in true crime books Mm -hmm. so we labeled where that section starts Mm -hmm. and we did the same for sports and u.s history and world war ii and a bunch of other things we have like a civil rights area it's like the 305s are a lot is kind of the beginning of where you start to see Mm -hmm. really interesting books get categorized uh on topics of race and gender and all of those like issues in history and today and went, Oh, we have a lot of kids looking for these types of things. And so even just that, like something, how do you, if I'm standing in the library, I shouldn't have to be looking at the correct shelf to know the general idea of where to go. Right. Gotcha. So how do you make it that it's visible that this is where you're headed? Your new stuff, those purchases that you're talking about, I think that's absolutely right. But eventually it goes on your shelf. Yeah. And I've yeah. been in some libraries that don't forward face books at all. So I'm looking at a shelf and I'm just seeing spines. Well, that's not going to draw my attention to anything. <clears throat> right. So how do you make it so that kids want to, and just that act, get rid of as much as you can that's irrelevant so that you can, when you have the relevant books, you can forward face those on your shelf and bring people's eyes to them. And I know that that sounds elementary, but like, I think that that was such a difference for when we got, when we had space to do it, that kids went, Oh, I'm just going to pick this book up because it's there and go, Oh, this actually looks really good. Yeah. The, I think that is the flip side to the, purchasing component of this which is also maintaining a relevant and an interesting and a browsable collection because i think everybody has a built-in number of duds that they're going to get to and they're (laughs) going to give up you know like and if i get four in a row that look like they are for middle school kids and the pictures are from the 80s i'm just done you know like i'm probably going to walk away from that shelf and say this library doesn't have anything even if the even if book five would have been the winner you know And so I think that's the other side of it. Um, All right. So if you have any ideas for what you've done to make your nonfiction more user-friendly, we would love another email, not just from Megan Ballas at Truman, although you send as many as you want. Again, we are never going to be sad about getting to read that people are listening uh, that aren't sandy at melville on days when i'm not there and (laughs) i'm used to hearing this voice in my ear all day i need to i need that back just for a minute to feel like it's a normal day or things were too calm i need to to be annoyed for a few minutes uh so send us an email to librarymediachatter at gmail.com and maybe you will be highlighted in the next what are you doing segment So that brings us to the Reader's Nook. And we are going to cover this episode, another one of the Gateway books, uh, Ordinary Hazards by Nikki Grimes. This is a, I'm going to say, rare instance of a memoir of a nonfiction 
being included in the gateways. We never seem to get more than one a year if we get one. Mm-hmm. And now that the dogwoods exist, uh, my assumption is that that number will go to zero yeah. because we'll be able to highlight those in the dogwoods. And ordinary hazards works out nicely because it is both a gateway and a dogwood. So, I didn't realize that. I didn't, yes. I didn't make that connection. Okay. Uh, it meant that I read one less total book uh, <laughs> than I would have read if it was not full. So that was, or I got to, I, maybe I got to spend that one book on something not a nominated <laughs> in Missouri yeah. uh, book. Uh, Ordinary Hazards is a memoir in verse written by the aforementioned Nikki Grimes. And it's about her childhood. It focuses mostly on her childhood and moving around and having uh, not the easiest time. Greg, do you think that's fair to say not the easiest time? I would say that is quite true. Yeah. I, I don't want to say I enjoyed reading the book because it is rough. Like there are spots that were tough. Yeah. Um, And I think that, your students will have that sense as well that this is you are getting a uh, a real look at somebody who grew up in a rough situation but she grew up to become a, a recognized author who's published a bunch of books but it was a lot it felt like at times as quick of a read as a memoir in verse can be there were uh, a number of moments where i felt I don't want to say overwhelmed, but just kind of like, I'm going to set this down a minute and maybe come back to it because this is maybe a little heavier than I was ready for. What were your thoughts, Greg? Initial thoughts? Yeah, well, I will say that I was, I am not the ideal audience for this kind of book. Like I'm not, um, I do not seek out or enjoy stories about uh, bad lives, you know, about having a hard life. I, and I will, you know, kind of, if anyone is a 30 rock fan, I know that show has been off TV for a while, but you know, at near toward the second half of that show's, you know, trajectory, Tracy Jordan gets famous for making a movie called hard to watch. And it's essentially, <laughs> it's essentially a takeoff of this genre, right. Of like, you know, books and movies that are just about taking pleasure. And I know that's a weird thing to say, but kind of taking some sort of recreational pleasure in someone else's lived suffering and i just don't like it it's not me it's not for me i'm not the audience i and i will i'm also deeply skeptical of books that start with a disclaimer about the (laughs) faulty about faulty memories and the imperfection of memory and i know that's true i have no argument with it being true but that was my issue with educate educated and that was my issue with this one that anytime you start off by saying well, this is how I remembered it or imagined it. I'm like, oh, well, yeah. You know, like, I don't know what to do with that, except say, then I'm not really like, I can, anyway. So all of that is my, my way of saying, I also know the kind of student who is going to want this book. And it's, you know, the students who have either a lived or are living um, a similar experience as tragic as that is, you know, who find a lifeline in this. Or B, um, the students who do take a vicarious pleasure in other people's suffering for whatever reason. And I'm, that's not a criticism of them. I'm just saying it's the same kid that's going to check out a child named It, you yes. know? Yes. Um, those, there, are, there is a group of kids and they're often struggling readers who really connect with this kind of story 
The fact that it's in verse is, I think, a bonus. Um, although she says in the very first poem, I'm a poet, so I can keep it short. And it's then yeah. it's 317 pages. Yes. And you're like, well, yeah. <laughs> could you? Well, <laughs> uh, what I was <laughs> what I was thinking about as you were describing, like the, it being in verse makes it a little bit more can be appealing or a positive factor for some people. Uh, it made me think of Ellen Hopkins books. Yes. And, and this book itself. And we, I know that they are, they are books in verse and this is, they are free verse poems, but being a former English teacher, uh, I'm always a little bit hopeful that one of these types of books will all be written like in limerick form <laughs> or something like it just, can you use a, a form that will lighten the mood right. since your content is not going That's, to, which would totally is, undermine everything. Yeah. But in my head, like it just, it just has like a nice little lilt to it. As yeah. I'm reading each of these this is made up of 317 limericks. Oh my gosh. Uh, that would about be a different abuse book. and tragedy and whatever. Um, yeah. It's heavy. It's heavy. And it's just, I, and again, because this isn't my genre, yes, I can I can say I know who will read it. Yes, but it's real hard for me to like. I don't even I don't know. Like I didn't even think the poetry was that good. I was kind of like, oh, <laughs> like I feel like I've read other novels in verse that are much better poems. I anyway does it. Clearly, I was not the right audience for it. You know, I think that's the best thing you can say about a book. It wasn't sure. the right book for me. You know, um, but I know kids. There are kids who will connect with this. Yes. Yeah, I, this is a, definitely a a book for an audience, and if yeah. you can find the kids that it's for, I think they will appreciate it in a way that it sounds like neither one of us were quite there for. Right. Um, and the, I, I'm with you. It, it is. I've read one or two Ellen Hopkins. Uh, one of the other Dogwoods this year was Shout uh -huh. uh, by Lori Holtz Anderson, which is her memoir in verse about. Mm -hmm. Uh, the time in her life that led her to write, speak. It is less, at times, it is less heavy than this. Yeah. But it's one of those, like, uh, it's not you, it's me. Because I was reading uh -huh. that one, I was like, like, I, this is, it's, parts of this are very powerful. And I am positive that there is an audience for this that will have such an appreciation that this book is out there for them. Yeah. And I, it's not me. And yeah, there's part of me that wishes I could connect to it a little bit more, but the majority of me is very happy that I can't, that it's just like, and that's, that's maybe a, a place of privilege or whatever you want to call it, but it's just not, it's not the thing that I'm looking for when I have some time to read. Yeah. Um, well, and I just think, I mean, uh, you know, that's the reality of publishing just yes. as, as a side note is that, lots of books are published often with very niche audiences or yes. audience, you know, and even best-selling books are still only, you know, think of the best-selling books like Harry Potter or yes, 50 shades of gray, or even those are only read by a fraction of the population. I yes. mean, like, so I think it's totally fine to say, you know, this is a book with a specific audience and our job is to help that audience find it, you know? And yes. And I think your your connection to a child called It, which is a book that's been out for a very long time and continues to get uh, students that are oh, interested in reading it. Yeah, I yeah. think this would be kind of right in that realm. I'm glad yeah. that you made that because I I had not made that connection. As soon as you said it, I went, oh yes, that's the that's the 
the way to sell it. Those are the yeah. kids when they're like, okay, I read, this is a book that I, I read. Do you have anything else? Yes, I do. Yeah. Um, and it's a very yeah. different story in a lot of ways because it's, it's her unique story. Yes. But those, the types of things uh, and the feelings and whatever, as you're reading it, I think that's a, that's a perfect connection there. Oh, good. Good. So well done. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. You'll bring me back for episode yes. six. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, because who? It's not just going to be me, and <laughs> not a long line of people that are going. When can I record with Dan Wright about books? Um, okay, so that's the end of this reader's nook. I think yeah. we covered it. Yeah, uh, which we'll go to our last commercial break, and then we'll wrap things up. This episode is brought to you by Spine Labels. We go on the spine of a book and provide useful information about that book. Dewey number, maybe genre, and which book in a series it is. You know what we are. We can be helpful to librarians and patrons alike. Spine labels. Please don't ignore us. Oh my gosh. Okay, I think that just about wraps it up for this episode of Library Media Chatter. Uh, I do want to let you know that our normal segment at the end, uh, that it will due to ongoing legal issues, will no longer be mentioning a certain English teacher turned physical education instructor. So this has to end a little bit differently. Instead, Greg uh, has agreed to give you his top five tips for being a better field hockey player, which I thought was very brave uh, on this episode that he was willing to step in uh, and cover that. So take it away, Greg. Uh, uh, Greg? No? Oh, sorry. Greg is experiencing technical difficulties, apparently. So we're all out of time. Until next time, remember, read responsibly, use a bookmark.